Good morning, church. Would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and then we'll make our way over to Luke, chapter 19. Savannah, thank you for leading us in our offering today with such a beautiful liturgy. Amen. God is merciful to us. I said God is merciful to us because had Jewel and the worship team been in person this morning singing those Church of God in Christ songs, we might have tore this building up. Uh, anybody come from the Church of God in Christ in here? Any Church of God in Christ folk? Huh? Uh-huh, got a couple there. What, what, what about Baptists, folks? Any Baptists? Amen. Uh, what about, what about uh, let's see here, Methodists? Anybody come from the Methodist background? All right, he waves his hand. I see you there. Uh, Lutheran, any Lutherans here? Any Lutherans? What about, uh, what about uh, Presbyterian? What about non-denominational people? What, you, what about people who were not church, just from the alley, the street, the curb? Uh, amen, I see those hands. <laughs> All right, well, it's good. It's good, no matter where we come from, to be in God's house with God's people. Those denominations have their place. And as I like to say, second place or third place to Jesus and to his agenda, but those denominations uh, give us rich heritage and traditions and songs. And so, Jewel, thank you for leading us. Now, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe uh, the worship ministry will be live next week. Pastor G, am I right about that? Well, well the, worship, the worship ministry will be live next week. Amen. So, uh, man, but I, I thank God that over this past year, God has grown all of us in worship. Um, amen, amen. Let's give him praise for that. He's grown all of us, right? That uh, worship is so much more than a moment. It is a lifestyle. And to be able to worship in our living rooms, to be able to sing, and, and in my living room, uh, my tone deafness was not drowned out. See, in here, my tone deafness is drowned out. But at home, my daughters can hear me. I'm, I'm trying to flow in the spirit, but I'm destroying what the spirit is trying to do as I make a joyful noise. But I'm so glad God listens to the heart more than he listens to the lips. Because, man, what comes out the mouth? Woo. Uh, I sound good to me. My wife has put up with this all these years. I sound good to myself. Jalen, I don't have what God gave you, brother. I, my God, amen. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to let a rock cry in my place. You know? Hey, I can give him a little bit of something. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, this week is Holy Week or Passion Week. And uh, as you see with the purple cloth on the cross, uh, today Palm Sunday celebrates the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was acknowledged as the king of the Jews. And then on Friday, if you're able to come out for the Good Friday service, there will be a black cloth on that cross signifying his death. And then if the Lord should allow for all of us to be here on Sunday, Resurrection Day, there will be a white cloth on the cross that we have been purified and cleansed from our unrighteousness because our king not only died on Friday, but he rose again on Sunday. I don't know about you, but I believe this. I believe all of this. I believe, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Amen. I don't know where I would be without Jesus in my life. Amen. So let's uh, pray for the word and ask God to give us what we need this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity, one more opportunity to be alive and to be alive in Christ Jesus, to be alive on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, to be alive and in your house. 
Lord, with use of our faculties and being able to understand and comprehend and worship you and adore you, to even listen to you, to obey you. Thank you, Spirit of the living God, that you indwelt these jars of clay so that everyone know that anything good about us does not come directly from us, but it, be, it comes because of your mercy and your presence in our lives. So, Lord, would you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, speak through me and in spite of me this morning. Help me, Lord, to do my best to stay with the text, with the Bible. And any application that comes in my preaching may it be consistent with the kingdom of God. I pray for those who are listening here at church and those who are listening online. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you know no boundaries or limitations, that you are present everywhere all the time. And wherever you are, all of you is there, all of your love all of your mercy, all of your grace, all of your power to turn things around. Lord, I thank you that you call us to have faith because when we have faith, Lord, you're able to do the impossible on our behalf. We trust you and we pray, Lord, that you'll reward your people today because we're not leaning on our own understanding or looking to someone else to be our deliverer. Our eyes are on you. Our hope is in you, Lord. You must heal the sick. You must raise the dead. You must touch relationships. You must regulate troubled minds. You must be the one who will ease burdened hearts. You must be the one to do the work. And when it's done, and even before it's done, we give you the glory. Lord, save the lost today. I pray that some man, woman, boy, or girl may come to know Jesus for themselves today, a real relationship with a real God. Lord, I'm asking a lot, and that's why I'm asking it all in Jesus' name. Amen, and thank God. Well, last week, if you were here or you attended online, I asked everyone to put themselves in the sandals of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 9 as Jesus was making his trek toward Jerusalem. He had set his face toward Jerusalem in order to go and be our sin substitute, to die on the cross, to drink the cup of suffering in order to liberate us and free us from the bondage, penalty, and presence and power of sin. Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb, and he was focused in, and there were so many distractions along the way, mainly from his disciples, but then there would be distractions from the crowds. But he was focused, and I asked you to put yourselves in his sandals last week. Well, this morning, I'm asking you to put yourself in his saddle this week. Put yourself in his saddle, because as we'll see today, Christ, uh, he sat upon a colt after they had put their clothes on the colt to create a saddle for him. He then rode what we would call triumphantly into Jerusalem. So today, I want us to vicariously, in our mind, just try our best to go back and to put ourselves not only in the sandals of the Savior, but in the saddle of our God. Because today is Palm Sunday, and Christians all over the world are celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And some might ask, why is the triumphal entry so significant to our faith? Why is the triumphal entry so paramount to our faith? Well, the triumphal entry is significant because Jesus orchestrated this moment in order to introduce himself to the nation as the king of the Jews. This, this moment is important because Jesus introduced himself intentionally to the people as the king of the Jews. And what this means is that Jesus, or should I say King Jesus, he produced this moment. He directed this moment, and he starred in this moment. He was the producer, the director, and the star. The reason why I say that he was the producer and the director is because 
He told two of his disciples to go into the adjoining town of Bethpage and find a colt that he might sit upon it and ride into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Because the disciples weren't thinking this way. They didn't see what was going on in terms of this moment in redemptive history. But Jesus wasn't waiting on them to acknowledge his kingship. He understood that after three and a half years of ministry, it was now time to officially show himself to the people. Because up to this point, Jesus would often tell people, don't declare that he was the Messiah. Because to be the Messiah for the Jewish people was to be the king of the Jews. And to be the king of the Jews was to be the Messiah of the people. But so often Jesus would say, don't tell anyone what I did for you. Because he had a lot of preaching to do, a lot of healing and things to do. And, and had the clouds clamored, as they did in John chapter 6, after he fed 5,000, they wanted to make him king at that moment. But that was not the time for Jesus to acknowledge his kingship, and his kingship would not be brought in on the backs of feeding people as good as that was. Because there were some people who just wanted the food or the bread and the fish from Jesus. But they didn't want the lordship of Jesus. So God always operates according to a divine timetable and calendar and clock, which is why we should not fret when things don't happen, when we want or how they want. We must have faith to know that God knows the right time and the right season when things will occur in our lives. And in Jesus' case, there was a right time to manifest himself as the king, as Israel's Messiah, to make it public. Oh, my. And Jesus, knowing that it was the hour, he was in Bethany, as we'll see in John chapter 12. He was in Bethany. But according to archaeological study, Jesus walked 20 minutes uphill to go to Bethpage in order to get on a donkey, a colt there, and ride down the Mount of Olives. In other words, he made it more dramatic. He could have left from Bethany, which was closer, but he went up the hill. He walked up the hill and rode down the hill because the crowds were swelling in anticipation of this moment. Jesus understood the moment, and in a God way, he milked it for every bit of it because he also knew the hearts of the worshipers. And as they praised him on this Sunday, many of them would turn on him come Friday. But he did not allow their waywardness to stop him from fulfilling Old Testament scripture that we'll read about in a moment. You see, what sets up John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is the miracle when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And in John chapter 11, when Jesus does this, the Bible lets us know that basically Jesus has now broken the back of the evil religious syndicate of the day. And because Jesus had raised the dead, the Pharisees said, look, the whole world is going after him now. And they should have joined that group and went after Jesus. But instead, in order to preserve and protect and maintain their religious hierarchy, they decided they had to really kill him now. And not only did they want to kill Jesus, but they said, we also need to take out Lazarus because people are starting to believe in Jesus because they're looking at this man who used to be dead walking around now alive. And so there is a hit, another hit placed on the life of Jesus Christ. And the Bible lets us know that as the syndicate came against Jesus, the people were still excited about Jesus. They didn't let their evil leaders stop them from truly grabbing hold of a man who raised the dead and had time for the sick. So the people, Jesus was the people's champion. And so knowing that Passover was coming and it was the tradition of the Hebrew people to go into Jerusalem to begin celebrating Passover, they lined the streets in anticipation. 
because there was wonder and even question on whether or not he would come. Because so many had turned against him, people were wondering, is he actually going to come? And then the Bible says in the Gospel of John that once they heard word that he was going to come, they lined the hill, they lined the countryside waiting for the Lord to come. Look with me in John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, which is Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Verse 14, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, and now he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So they heard he was coming, and they made preparation for him. The people who had been raised in Old Testament law understood the significance and the prophetic meaning of this moment. They knew that their king was coming. And so they lined the streets with their clothes, speaking of the fact that they were submitting to his authority. They waved palm branches, which for the Israelite people spoke of freedom and deliverance because when they had come out of Egypt and found themselves without water and Moses uh, had thrown a tree into the water, it became sweet. Then they went to a place called Elam where there were 70 palm trees. So the palm tree spoke of deliverance and victory for the people of God. So waving the palm branches was saying, you are our victor. You are our conqueror. You are our deliverer. And by shouting Hosanna, they are quoting from Psalm 118 which is what pilgrims going into Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, Jewish people from all over the then known world, they would sing certain psalms from the Old Testament as they would make their way in. And Psalm 118 was one of those songs or psalms where it would say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us, deliver us, save us now. And they're asking this king to save them from religious hypocrisy. Because these shepherds that have been over us, these Pharisees, these scribes, they have been hard on us. They have uh, taught us legalism. They have told us to do things that they're not doing. They put us down. So save us from them. But above all, Lord, save us from Roman occupation. Because the Jews were under Roman occupation. They were oppressed by the Romans. And so this cry was, save us, deliver us. Uh, And what was missing in this cry, more than likely, was a cry for soul salvation, life salvation. It was more political than it was spiritual. It was more religious than it was spiritual. But nevertheless, they're out there giving God their best praise. And... The triumphal entry, we see in John chapter 12, they sit him on the donkey, a colt, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Now go over to Luke chapter 19, because each one of the gospel writers gives us various pictures and perspectives on what happened on this day. And when you put them all together, what a beautiful picture we have. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 37, the Bible says, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So they're celebrating their Uh, exclaiming, they are worshiping, they're making a joyful noise. It's like a parade going on, and Jesus is the center 
of attention and the main attraction. And the people have been waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the Messiah to come. They believe that he is now here. And they look at the works in which he had done, especially the raising of a dead man from the grave. And no doubt people followed him all the way from Galilee, knowing all of the works that he did in Capernaum and Bethsaida, that they followed this wonder worker saying, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never heard anyone talk like him before. This is Jesus' moment where he decides in the final week of his earthly life to make it known that he is the king, that he is the Messiah. Now is his moment. Now is his time, and people are celebrating. People are waving palm branches. They're laying their clothes down. Again, it's festive, it's joyful. But the Bible says Jesus wept in this moment. Jesus wept in this moment. Now, I've been reading the Bible ever since 1986. And I never noticed this until this past week that in the midst of this moment where everyone has high praise, our Lord is lamenting. On his special day, on Palm Sunday, the king is crying. Doesn't seem to add up. Doesn't seem to make sense unless we put ourselves in the saddle of Christ. Unless we do our best to try to say, Lord, show me the heart of Jesus. Show me what he was dealing with so that the things that break your heart might break my heart. Because so often the church is busy celebrating when we ought to be lamenting. And God forbid if we're laughing when we ought to be crying. So permit me to entitle this message today, The Day King Jesus Cried. Palm Sunday, the day that King Jesus cried. And so on the day when the people finally acknowledged that Jesus was the king, because remember Herod heard from the wise men that there had been born one who was the king of the Jews, and he sought to try to kill Jesus. And Jesus' family, Mary and uh, uh, Joseph, they chose to flee into Africa, and they stayed there until that Herod had died. But Jesus, again, did not go around proclaiming that he was the king. There, there was a time for that, and this is that time. But what this king does Rather than getting caught up in the pageantry and the fanfare of the moment and saying, I deserve this, I'm worthy of this, and yes, he was, and yes, he is. But look at this king's heart. He does at least three things from the text. He weeps over the city. Then he cleanses the temple. And then thirdly, he heals the sick. Can we get this image of the Messiah in our minds? Because in America, we love to celebrate, and we especially love to be celebrated. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But the Holy Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus, and in order to know what Jesus was like, we've got to read the Bible objectively. And let the Lord leap off the pages and into our souls, hearts, minds, and actions. And on this day where he celebrated, he's weeping over the city, he's going to cleanse the temple, and he's going to heal the sick. Let's start first with the fact that Jesus wept over the city because I know somebody's probably thinking I'm making this up. You know, because when you haven't heard something before, you think, oh, man, he's making that up. No, I'm not making it up. I'm just letting the Bible speak. Look at verse 41 of Luke 19. Now, as he drew near, near what? Jerusalem. 
he saw the city and what? Wept over it. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Man, that was all right. And uh, 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 he started weeping. They're celebrating. He's crying. He weeps over the city. Verse 42, and he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. There you go. That's what happens when you invite a prophet to a party. <laughs> That's what happens when a prophet comes to a celebration. Because they're not just in the moment. They're prophetically in the future. And Jesus is the prophet based on Deuteronomy chapter 18, which is another type or symbol or name of the Messiah that the Messiah would not only be king, but the Messiah would be the prophet. And Jesus prophesies in this moment. It's a dreadful prophecy. You see, as the Lamb of God, Jesus wept over the city, which meant that he wept over the nation, which meant that he wept over his people. And he said to them that you do not know the time of your visitation. What does that mean? More than likely, it means that the Lord had visited them and that generation in the flesh. The Old Testament prophets longed to see the day when the Messiah would come. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob longed to see the day when the Christ would come. But that particular generation, that moment, that group of people they were there when the Lord visited them in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, the majority of them missed that moment. They missed the visitation of the Lord. Because again, they're going to chant crucify him in just a few days. And there are going to be many, the majority, who did not follow this preacher from Nazareth, they didn't want to believe in him. They, they didn't want, even with all of the signs and all of the wonders, they missed their moment. And because of that, destruction was inevitable. I know that's hard for us to hear in a culture where everybody gets a trophy. But the people missed their moment and destruction was inevitable. And due to their regular rejection of Jesus, they were now kept from seeing him for who he was. Isn't that what Jesus said? He says, but now in verse 42, they are hidden from your eyes. And Jesus will quote Isaiah the prophet who said in Isaiah chapter 6, he will quote him regularly that the people were so obstinate and stubborn and hard-hearted towards God they had this religion where their mouths honored God, but their hearts were far from him. They were caught up in all of these traditions and ceremonies, but God was sickened by their ceremonies because their hearts were not bent towards him, nor did they do justice and love mercy and help hurting people. So you can fool folk in the pew, but you can't fool the God of heaven. And so Jesus would say, because of the spiritual condition of his people, they could see with their eyes but not comprehend what they saw. They could hear him speak with their ears, but not hear him in their spirit, which is why Jesus would say, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Just because you can hear naturally doesn't mean it hits your soul. They had hearts, but they couldn't feel because the more you resist and reject Jesus, the more you resist and reject the spirit, the harder it is for you to receive Jesus and receive the Spirit. 
Because God loves you. God is gracious. But he's not going to keep knocking on a door that tunes him out. And so the blessing becomes judgment. The opportunity becomes judgment. You won't receive, then therefore, judgment is inevitable. Which is why when you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart. In the day of your visitation, receive the Lord. But these folks, they didn't receive the Messiah by and large. John chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so Jesus is saying, I know y'all are celebrating me now, but I'm weeping over the fact that because you by and large have rejected me as a nation, you have rejected me as a people, when you reject me, the only thing that is going to come is going to be judgment. And he prophesies, because y'all worship this building more than you worship the God of the building, I'm going to destroy the building. The building that you just, oh, look at what uh, uh, was done. Uh, uh, we, we look back at Solomon's temple, but then this temple was built, the second temple, and Herod was a great builder. And he encased it with gold everywhere. And Jesus said, uh, not one stone is going to be left on this place. Because the building became an obstruction. The building became an idol. I'd rather for you to not go to church for a year so that you can meet with me for real than come to church and play church. Because God is after the heart. There's no building down here that's so impressive that God says, oh, look how man built that thing. Let me take it to heaven. Mm -mm. All of this is going to burn. The stuff that we put so much in. Matter of fact, matter of fact, let me read something to you from Matthew chapter 23. Because later in the week, Jesus prophesied again about the building. Let's see here. Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, all that religion, but you're bloodthirsty. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wait a minute, hold on. There's good stuff here. He prophesies the building is going to be destroyed. That happens when? In A.D. 70. When Roman general Titus surrounded the walls of Jerusalem, smoked the people out basically, knocked the walls down, ransacked it, killed folks, and that was when Israel basically lost their place in the Holy Land. And they wouldn't get it back until 1948. But it was judgment that came on the people for rejecting God's Messiah. He always puts life and death in front of us, blessings and curses in front of us. And if we reject life, curses will come inevitably. We will reap what we sow. You can't have a good life and reject the author of life. But they did. He prophesied destruction, and it happened. It's a historical fact. And here in Matthew 23, later in the Passion Week, he gets on it again about the house is going to be desolate. He's weeping over his city and over the people. The lamb is weeping. And he says, y'all are not going to see me again until y'all say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wait a minute, Jesus, can I put it in reverse? Because they just said that to you on Sunday. They were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, they said it at the first coming, but they didn't mean it. But once persecution hits the Hebrew Israelite people in our time, they're really going to cry out, Hosanna. Save us, help us, deliver us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at that time, Jesus will be Israel's Messiah and Savior. But until that time, no, Israel's heart is covered with a veil. 
It's going to take persecution, the great tribulation, to make Israel cry out, we need the Savior now. And the same Mount of Olives that he came down the first time, the Bible says in the book of Zechariah that he's going to, in the second coming, on a horse, not a donkey. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives from heaven in the second coming, and the mountain is going to split in two. And the Jews will finally embrace their Messiah, the one that we love and know right now. So we pray for Israel. We don't get arrogant. No, we've been grafted into the vine. They're the vine. We've been grafted in as Gentiles, so we don't get arrogant because we can see him now. We thank God that we're no longer blind. And I thank God, man, for Jewish people who are Messianic Jews, who have embraced the Christ. The one Paul said, man, I wish my people knew the Lord. He said, I would give anything for my people to know the Lord. But his people, by and large, rejected Jesus then, and they've rejected him now. And here Jesus comes weeping over the city. He rejected me. And because of that, persecution is coming. But the persecution can be used to bring you back to me. How many of y'all know that you pray more earnestly when you're going through something. I know I can get a witness, right? It's a little bit different when you're up in something. Oh, Lord. Oh, no problem with fasting. No problem. I'm looking for the Lord everywhere when you're going through something. So when the fire increases, their heads will lift up and the king of glory will come in. But oh, what, what, what makes us weep over our nation? What makes us weep over our city? Because if we're following Christ, there ought to be things that make us weep about our city, about our nation, about our country. Because I feel like this country has missed its moments of visitation. I feel like this country has had opportunity after opportunity for centuries to truly repent and live up to the Christian heritage that it claims. But over and over again, rather than choosing Christ, this nation chooses everything else but Christ. And we miss key moments. I feel like January 6th was a key moment for this nation to repent. When we looked at some of the worst of ourselves who stormed the Capitol and killed a a Capitol police officer and other people died in that melee. And rather than repenting and saying, there's blood on our hands, we dig in deeper and our hearts become more callous and we become more entrenched in our political positions rather than saying, look at what we have become. Seven mass shootings in the last 10 days. And the last thing we wanted to do is to become commonplace. Where shootings happen and we just keep on going. Ten people died in Colorado, including a police officer. Eight people died in Georgia. Others died in Philly. And in Tennessee, our governor wants to pass a law for permitless gun carry. I don't understand it. And in Georgia, it's now easier to get a gun than it is to register to vote. Something is wrong with that. And we claim to be a Christian nation. We're in the buckle of the Bible belt here in the South, but we stand behind legislation that doesn't lift people up. It puts people down. Georgia passes a bill to suppress voter turnout. And they do it right in front of our eyes, making us say, did Jim Crow really die? Because you lost an election legally and fairly. You want to use your political power to make it hard for black and underserved people to get to the polls when black and marginalized people are in line longer at polls 
than upper income people in the state. And so when people have to be in lines for almost eight hours to cast a vote, and then your law says that no one can bring them water or snacks while they're standing in line. But somewhere my Bible says that if you really follow Jesus, you're going to give thirsty people water. Which means there ought to be a lot of people breaking that law in Georgia who named the name of Jesus, saying, I'm going to honor my God and he overrules this governor of this state who signs the law into practice under a painting of a plantation surrounded by uh, six white men while a black representative knocks on the door to get in just to see it for herself. And rather than letting her in, they arrest her. They did more to her than they did to the people who stormed the Capitol. We missed our moment. And just in case you think I'm leaning one way politically, let me come back this way and hit Washington real quick. It ought to make you weep that President Biden puts into office a transgender woman who is the Assistant Secretary of Health. Now don't come for me and say I'm a homophobe. Don't, don't come for me and say I'm, I'm transgender hope. Don't, don't come for me like that. Because I'm not. I stand with the Lord, which means I stand on the side of compassion, truth, and love. And the more we make things like this normal, or as Paul would say, we're trying to make stuff unnatural become natural. Romans chapter 1. You see, you're not preaching right as a person behind the pulpit or in the pew if you don't have some enemies out here. Everybody's not going to love you. And when you preach the gospel, see, because when we get to the second point, when Jesus turned those tables over, he disrupted the economic base of that institution. Because when you start messing with people's money, when you start messing with people's position, they're going to want to mess with you. Which is why Jerusalem killed the prophets. Which is why Jerusalem was drunk in its own blood of righteous Abel all the way up until Jesus Christ, he said. And when America continues to see over the killing of millions of babies, when America will not help those who are seeking asylum in this country and we close our doors and we separate families and children and we keep hiding behind politics and Christians have gotten behind both places, We've missed our visitation. We've missed our moment to be a lamb with the gender wage gap in this country. That women, on average, white women, make 86 cents on the dollar that a white male makes. Why is there this disparity? Why can't a woman be paid what a man gets paid? Don't you know God hates unjust scales? And then if you break it on down, black women make 77 cents on the dollar that white men make. And Latina women make 76 cents on the dollar that white men make. And indigenous women make 69 cents on the dollar. We should be weeping over the city. May we not become so callous that it doesn't move us. But sometimes stuff don't hit home till it hits your home. And then you're looking for somebody. Hey, can somebody help me, please? You miss your moment of your visitation. But secondly, Jesus cleansed the temple. This made him real popular. Luke chapter 19. On this big day where they're celebrating him, he got to go spoil it and give a prophecy of destruction that's going to happen in 70 AD. Even children are going to be destroyed. This is tough. But we're celebrating Man, we should be contemplating. But verse 45 says, then, speaking of continuous activity, he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
Oh, this Jesus here. Many times we want to keep him as the lamb. Oh, the lamb weeps. Yeah, the lamb weeps, but the lion from the tribe of Judah roars. Can I get a witness? Jesus is perfectly balanced as lamb and lion. But some of us many times only want to see him one-dimensionally. But again, if we read the Bible and let the Bible tell us that Jesus knew when to let his lambness show and when to let the lion in him roar. And in this moment, we see both. He goes from weeping, now he goes into the temple and he cleanses it for the second time in his earthly ministry. He cleansed it the first time he started, started his ministry in order to establish his authority and to let people know that this was his father's house. And again, he told them parabolically and prophetically, you guys love this building so much. Destroy this building, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And they used that when they were trying to find a reason to put him to death, saying that he said he was going to destroy the temple. But he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. And the reason why they couldn't hear it was because they didn't have ears to hear. They heard him talk, but they didn't hear him talk. And so Jesus cleanses the temple then, and he cleanses the temple now. My God. I guess he has the right to cleanse it because it's his father's house. You don't need permission to do spring cleaning. It's your house. This is father's house. I don't need to ask anybody's permission before I roll up in here and tell them to roll up out of here. But because of that kind of authority, because he did that, he offended a lot of people. And it was kind of like, who do you think you are? We were doing fine up in here, turning this place into a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer. We were doing fine up in here making our money because the money changers had a racket, y'all. It was a legitimate need. Because as pilgrims came in to Jerusalem for Passover, especially as Gentile proselytes who came in, they would have to get an offering in order to present it to God at the temple. So they would have to buy a lamb. But they would have to exchange the money first because there was temple money or coinage. So if you're coming from another part of the world, you have to come and exchange currency. But the people in the temple did exactly what the tax collectors did that they despised the tax collectors for. And that is they marked up the price and no one could stop them. And so the money changers in the temple, they marked up the price on the sacrifices. So they were in there with the motivation to make money more than they were in a mo there with the motivation to help worshipers get to God. So they're fleecing the sheep. They're robbing the people. And they've gotten so casual with God that they're just letting all kind of animals run and roam through the temple mount area. So when you stop, when you stop respecting God and start disrespecting him, you just start letting stuff go because you don't revere him. You don't honor him. You're trying to get paid. And here Jesus comes and he makes a cord of whips. This is righteous anger, righteous indignation. And he whips those animals. He turns those tables over. And the prophet speaks, not only behind a pulpit, but in the public space and in the Temple Mount area. And he says, get out of here. You are turning my father's house into a den of thieves. And I'm not going to let it happen on my watch while I'm here for this Passover. And he runs them out. He runs them out. And according to Mark 11, verse 16, Jesus even kept them from cutting through the temple. So they used the temple as a shortcut. Mark says, Jesus, no, y'all gonna stop this shortcut stuff. You remember growing up and you were coming home from school and you took a shortcut through Mr. Peabody's yard or Mr. Jones's yard? And you started taking that shortcut so much that you left what? A trail, a path in that man's yard because you didn't want to do the right thing and go around. You took a shortcut and went through that. But then Mr. Peabody got a dog and messed you up. <laughs> Mr. Peabody put a fence up and messed you up. Now you got to walk the way you're supposed to walk. 
They just going back and forth. Jesus said, no, no, we're going to stop that. It's disrespectful of y'all. This is my father's house. And he turns the tables of the money changes over. You see, once some preachers like myself start sitting at the table, the table is where decisions are made. The table is where money is exchanged. And no doubt there were preachers in cahoots with the people who were changing money. And, and once preachers start sitting at the table with politicians and with bankers, they lose their courage to confront the evil at the table. And they also lose their conviction of conscience to turn over the table. Because you got used to benefiting from sitting at ungodly tables. You got used to being invited to functions where you're the guest of the governor, but you don't have the conviction to lovingly say to the governor where he or she is wrong. Any preacher that can be bought is nothing but a puppet rather than a prophet because they're after the prophet with an F. And once that happens, we've lost our saltiness but not this preacher from Nazareth here. He's like, no, y'all need to get up out of here. And I just want to know before I go to my third point, what will it take for you to act like a lion and roar at stuff that's wrong, especially amongst the people of God, especially in the house of God? What will it take for you to act like a lion when your natural personality may be more like a lamb? What will it take for you to act like a lion? Just like the person who's naturally like a lion, they roar at everything. When's the last time we see you weep over something? What breaks your heart? Yeah, we, we didn't heard your consternation and you're, you're upset, but, but what makes you weep, man? God wants this kind of balance in us. What's going to make you act out of your character and turn a table over? Now, I got to warn you. I got to warn you. When you turn the table over, again, you're not going to be light. You're not going to be like, when you call out people, you're not going to be like, take it from me, I have the office of pastor, but the gift of prophecy, which means confronting, calling out things. On the Enneagram, I'm an eight. I'm a challenger, confronter. And I've been described as being a snowplow. I just, Every now and then, people get run over. Ah, children, ah! I uh, don't mean to do it, but I'm trying to grow in that area. And I think I have. I'm not as prophetic as I used to be. Just, But I remember times, y'all, when we had to do things at the church because we had people stealing from the church. We had staff members who stole from the church. They would be given a church credit card to do ministry. And we look up and they're doing personal things with the church credit card. And so since you cannot correct what you don't confront, we had to confront in mercy with an opportunity for the person to confess, repent, and change, right? But rather we got denial. We're holding receipts. You went to the gas station. You went to Kroger. You went to Walmart. This stuff isn't about ministry. So as we continue to press in, then it's like, oh, well, you know, I had these needs. I didn't have. Why didn't you come to somebody for money? Why did you steal? And because we saw a heart that was not repentant or broken, we had to fire that person. Then we had another person who, when we were at the factory, we would lease out the factory during the week to other businesses and things to use the space. It was called Liberty Leasings. And we had a gentleman who was not only stealing money from the church, but he was stealing uh, uh, items from the church, musical equipment from the church. But don't you know your sin will find you out? And when we confront it and the person doesn't want to repent and get it right, we have to terminate. But the word goes around, they're mean over there, strong tower. <sighs> Well, like Jesus, Psalm 69, verse 9, he said, zeal for my father's house consumes me. I'm more concerned with what God thinks than what people think. 
when we get to that place where we got to make a decision because people harden their necks and harden their hearts. Over the years, we've had to let people go who were caught up in all kinds of issues of sexual immorality, but again, they wouldn't repent. So you can't stay here in this house with that kind of attitude and that kind of lifestyle. Oh, they mean over there, strong tower. Okay, whatever. And then when we've had to do church discipline, because again, after you follow what the Lord says in Matthew 18 and people don't repent, people don't want to hear, Jesus said, treat them like a tax collector. Put them out, treat them like an unbeliever since that's what they're acting like. And we've had to go public on situations and, and hand people over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, doing church discipline, turning tables over in the house of the Lord. Man, I don't know about that place over there. We're trying to stick with the script. Church. Because as the pastor of this church, I'm at a place of accountability that others are not before the Lord. And I fear God more than man. I don't even want to fear man. But I love it when people we've terminated or people we've done church discipline on come back later and say, thank you, Pastor Chris. Thank you, Strong Tower, because had we not gone under that loving discipline from y'all, but above all from the Father, we may have stayed in a downward spiral. Thank you, man, for loving me enough to tell me the truth and call me out. Not everybody like that. I see some of them in town, and they, they look at me. I'm like, let me keep on walking, because they look like they want to stone a brother. Let me keep on walking with my little buggy. <laughs> but you got to turn the table and be a lion. Finally, finally, finally. Jesus healed the sick on this day. Look at Matthew chapter 21. He healed the sick on his day where everybody's celebrating him. He's weeping. He's cleansing. And our Savior is healing because as the shepherd of Israel, Jesus healed the sick. Lion, lamb, shepherd. Look at verse 12 of Matthew 21. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house, I love how he always stays in the scriptures. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then, look at that word of continuation, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. See, Jesus cleared a path. He got rid of all of those shysters and crooks and robbers and thieves. And now the common people feel like, we got a place now. We, we, we can come now because he seems to be on the side of what is right. We can come now. So the sick came to him. And Jesus made time for the last, the least, the left out, and the looked over. I'm one of those people. That's last, that's least, that's left out, that's looked over. But he was looking for me and he healed me. You, you see, he's the good shepherd. Psalm 23 says he anoints our head with oil because sheep get in trouble. They, they, their heads are always down, they're crashing into things so they get scars and scrapes on their head. But a good shepherd would put oil or salve or medicine on the head. And so the good shepherd, sick people are coming to him and he heals them. On his special day, on Palm Sunday, he's healing sick people. Can I tell you the kind of people that I admire? I admire people who, on their special day, on their birthday, they say, don't bring me any gifts. Uh, uh, can you give money to this foundation or to this cause? Rather than bring, I don't want anything. I don't need anything. I want you to help these homeless folk. I want you to help these hungry folk out. I want you to help this mission in Africa or Haiti out. Would you give money that you would have given to me to help other people out? That's that Christ-like spirit. Who on his birthday, Christmas, we all getting gifts. That's how he is. He's a giver. And when we grow in him, we're going to give. It's not going to always be about us. Which is why yesterday, your pastor was humble. Because yesterday I was selfish. I'm selfish every day. But yesterday I was really selfish. 
but the Lord is making me more and more like Christ, which is to be selfless. So I got to die daily, die to my flesh, die to these issues, die to when I want to do my thing. <sighs> Jesus told Peter, when you get older, man, you're going to go places you don't want to go. And yesterday, that was a place I didn't want to go. But the Lord was saying, you got to go. I said, no, I don't want to go. It's been raining all day. I don't want to go out there. But I had made a commitment to, pr to pray at the house of a first-time homeowner. The house hadn't been built yet. Only the foundation had been cut out. And they have tents up because of the rains and the storms. I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay in the house, man, and work on my sermon. I didn't want to go. But the hard bargain association which builds houses for people who, who don't have the money or the resources, they were building a house with local workers and they were dedicating it and they asked me to come since I go back to the founding of this particular ministry in the city of Franklin. So I'm telling my wife, I don't feel like going. She has no sympathy for me because she knows, dude. So I get up and go. I'm obedient. And I go out there, I, I, I park in some mud, I get out, mud is on my shoes, my, my umbrella is broken, and so half of it is protecting rain on this side, the other half I'm just getting drenched on this side, and I'm going to give the prayer. <laughs> and God reminds me, he said, now, here are some low-income folks who have the privilege of owning a home for themselves. You can't get excited about this? Man, what's your problem? What are you doing in the ministry? I repent, Jesus. So I get out there, and I start seeing people I know, and it's raining, and man, we start having church out there on the spot. And I'm supposed to pray, but I get caught up in the spirit and almost start preaching because I talk about when Jesus said, if you're going to build a house, uh, you got to put it on the right foundation because if you put it on sand, the wind and the storms that you see right now can knock that house down. But oh, if this house is built on the rock, who is Jesus, it will withstand the wind. It will withstand the storm. Can I get a witness? Everybody's like, hey, amen. I said, let us pray. And I had a great time serving the least because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So while we are praying for God to heal sick people, we can help sick people too. Millions still lack access to affordable health care. And not only that, they lack access to affordable pharmaceutical uh, uh, drugs. Jennifer Aiken, who's a member of our church, is a pharmacist, and she began to tell me about Tennessee's problem with affordable meds. And Tennessee is ranked 42nd in health care. We refuse to take $1.4 billion from, federal, from the federal government to expand Medicare. People who need help can't get the help, and the highest reason for bankruptcy in Tennessee is medical debt. So if I can't pay off my last bill and I can't afford my medicine, you think I'm going to the hospital now when I'm hurting? So people are dying early. People are dying who don't need to die because the system is not built for people at the bottom. But the only way to keep people at the bottom from getting burned is that somebody got to go and stir the pot. And we stir the pot through legislation and policy. We stir the pot through making our voices known. We stir the pot through possibly voting differently and doing things differently. Coming out to the food bank and blessing folks with food and giving clothes and whatever we can. So what will it take for you and I to act like a shepherd and help hurting people? While being celebrated on Palm Sunday, King Jesus wept. He wept over the city, which caused him to cleanse the temple, which caused him also to heal the sick and help hurting people. I want to be like him. I want to be like that. But sadly, Jesus' disciples missed the significance of that moment. The ones closest to him who ought to get it didn't get it. 
Because in John chapter 12, verse 16, the Bible says his disciples did not understand these things at first. So while they're there, they don't know what's going on. They don't get it. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. They got it later. Again, I'd rather get it later than not get it at all. But Lord, right now, would you help us to get it now? Don't let us miss this moment. And if there's someone here or someone watching as I go to prayer, I pray that you will receive Jesus, if you never have, as your king. As your king. Receive him and say, Hosanna, save me now. And for those of us who do know him, I pray that we would ask him, Lord, help me to be more like you. That in the midst of people celebrating you, you're thinking about other people. You're weeping. You're cleansing. You're healing. That's some radical stuff. How can we follow a radical savior? And every now and then, we don't become radical ourselves. Jesus, thank you for all that you did for us. Thank you for the triumphal entry. You are the king. And we anticipate your return where you will come back riding on a horse, a white horse with many crowns on your heads, on your head. And the government will be upon your shoulders. And as the church, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that time, you left us here to be salt and light, to be your hands and feet, to be your voice. Lord, would you deliver all of us from cultural conformity and socially acceptable Christianity? Lord, set us all free and show us who you really are and help us to be free in following Jesus Christ. Fill us up, Lord, with your strength. We love you in Jesus' name.